Hey, deserving listeners, this is chapter five in my attachment theory deep dive. I've already had four chapters, so listen to those first. Um, In this chapter, I'm going to talk about sexuality and attachment theory. There's a lot of research on sexuality and attachment theory, uh, but I want to get into at least some of it here just to give you an idea of what's going on in the research. There's a lot of research on couples, on intimate partner violence and sexuality and attachment, on uh, different attachment styles and how they approach sexuality. You know, preoccupied people approach sexuality different than avoidant people, than secure people. Faking orgasm has been looked into in terms of uh, attachment style. Infidelity, you know, how do how does infidelity, you know, when people are cheating on their partners, what does that have to do with attachment theory? And I think attachment theory is the exp- explainer of all that stuff. What about pornography? How is that related? Are some people using more pornography or less pornography depending on their attachment style? And then also, what about child porn? You know, is child pornography related to attachment theory? You know, the the consumption or uh, proliferation of child porn is that related to attachment insecurity to, at all? So let's get into all of that. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. If you're not a patron of the podcast, you're not going to hear this whole episode. So if you want to hear this whole episode, go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. Do so now. <music> Okay, let's talk about some sexuality issues in relation to attachment style and attachment theory. So when we look at the different attachment styles, we see different in general presentations or orientations towards sexuality. Again, these are generalizations to vast you know, swaths of people, so it's hard to generalize. But in general, securely attached people... They tend to prefer sexual activities in the context of a committed relationship rather than one-night stands and that kind of thing. Not to say that secure attachment people can't enjoy a one-night stand or polyamory or whatever. Um, Well, I guess polyamory is a committed relationship. So anyway, securely attached people tend to prefer sex in a committed relationship. They also experience sexuality in a more positive way of intimacy, mutual intimacy, gratification, and satisfaction in relationships. Avoidant people, particularly uh, high on the spectrum of avoidant attachment, they tend to segregate their sexual behavior from their attachment needs. So they tend to see uh, sex as more mechanical and not necessarily related to attachment and dependency. They also in they also have uh, infrequent sexual activity with relation with relationship partners. So, they with their romantic partners, they tend to have less sex, which kind of makes sense because um, they are more independent. They're less dependent. They're less likely to even really care about interacting with their romantic partner. They when they do engage in sex, it tends to be more impersonal more alone, more alienated, more detached. I guess that's the better word is detached. Avoidant people tend to have detached sexual um, activity and fantasies too. So when a avoidant person masturbates or thinks about sex that they want to engage in, it tends to be more detached and less emotionally involved. They also are more likely to have sex to conform to peer pressure and for self-enhancing reasons. So 
because they have attachment insecurity, they're just more susceptible to peer pressure in general, but also because they are more self-reliant and less uh, likely to reach across the aisle, so to speak, and connect with other people. When they're having sex, they're more concerned about themselves. And they're also more likely to engage in sexual activity to reduce stress. So they're like, oh, I'm stressed out. I better use sex to, to reduce stress. Preoccupied people, on the other hand, experience strong sexual urges in situations that are known to elicit attachment behavior. So again, it depends on the person, but uh, when you are preoccupied attachment, you're much more anxious about making sure you're connected to other people. And so sexuality is seen as a way of coping with that. So you, you use sex as a way of, of establishing that you are connected. So people who with preoccupied attachment, they're, they're often, um, you know, like I said, quite anxious about losing their partners. They're anxious about abandonment. They're anxious about being alone. And they, they sort of depend on the sexual activity to confirm that their spouse loves them. So, and that's true for even secure people, right? Sex and any kind of intimate activity does confirm one's loyalty and love and dedication to each other. But when you're preoccupied, you're really focused on that. Uh, Preoccupied people have frequent romance-related sexual fantasies. So in other words, when they masturbate or they have fantasies about about sexual activity, they tend to um, think about... uh, sex within a relationship. So they're more likely to fantasize about a relationship-oriented sexual activity because they they really want to meld with other people. They use sex as a means to feel valued by their partners, to feel confident in themselves, to to feel desirable. They, They really want to feel desirable to their partner. And they also will use sex to cope with negative emotions. So this is very important. Uh, preoccupied people are more likely to be jealous. So they, they really need that confirmation like, do you find me sexy? Do you find me sexually attractive? And if and if I don't have evidence of that, then I'm very much more worried that you're going to abandon me for someone else who is perhaps more sexually attractive to you. Uh, preoccupied people are more likely to be sexually gravitational. This, of course, isn't true for all preoccupied people, but because so for some preoccupied people, what they learn early in life is that one road to attachment security, one fast road to attachment security is to be sexually attractive, to make other people gravitate towards you due to your sexuality, due to the way you look, the way you dress, the vibe you have, the way you talk about things, and over time, through trial and error, you're like, oh, when I dress this way or when I talk this way or when I walk this way, I tend to get more attention, which tends to get people to pay more attention to me, which increases the likelihood that I'm going to find someone that loves me who I can depend on. And so uh, for some preoccupied people, histrionic people, they, they tend to be more out there, so to speak, with their sexuality. Uh, people who are pre- preoccupied, they use sex as a barometer of their relationship status uh, because they're frequently looking for cues of threat and cues of of security. They're, like I said, they're very focused on on their um, the sexual activity they have between the two people. So I hope this all stands to reason, giving our conceptualization of these three different types. Now, when it comes to disorganized, again, disorganized is kind of rare, but it is. Um, 
uh, it's more confused. People who are disorganized are more confused about sexuality. They're more likely to be detached from their themselves. They're more likely to lack a self. They probably like sex, and they probably like, um, if they're allosexual, they probably are um, enga- wanting to engage in sex. But they have a harder time interpreting the sex, and they they um, have a harder time trusting other people uh, with sexuality. And so it tends to be more pathological and more fraught for people who are disorganized. Okay, so let's talk about faking orgasm. So faking orgasm is actually related to attachment theory, um, and research has found this. So let's just look at some some statistics regarding faking orgasm. 90% of women do not orgasm consistently with their partner. And 10% of women, according to this study from 2003, do not experience orgasm at all. So that just gives you kind of a landscape. It's like the vast majority of women don't orgasm consistently and 10% don't orgasm at all. Uh, For men, the rates are um, not that high. Uh, There's certainly a lot of men who have trouble orgasming or don't care to orgasm all the time. And there are some men who don't orgasm at all, but but the percentages aren't that high. Um. Some research, uh, this study in 2010, uh, Molinard and and Shippey uh, found that between 50 and 65% of women reported that they had faked an orgasm with a partner. So this means that they're asking people, have you ever faked an orgasm in your life with, with while having sex with someone? And between half and two thirds of women were like, yeah, I've done it at least once in my life. So that should tell you something that um, about half of women have never faked an orgasm. So that, that says something. Um, and it also doesn't talk to the frequency. The, the research didn't look into that because you, did you do it once when you were 16 years old and never did it again? Or do you do it regularly? So it really just kind of depends. Now men fake orgasm too, but although it's not researched very often, if at all, uh, but men actually do fake orgasm, absolutely. In fact, I found one very rare study that found that about one-third of men have said that, yes, they have faked an orgasm at some point in their life. Um, we're going to get into the reasons why people fake here. So faking orgasm has been associated with the following themes for women because they're the people who tend to be um, researched along these lines. Uh when they've asked women why they fake orgasm, the following reasons are given. They fake orgasm to enhance the partner's confidence in their sexual skills. So they're, cause they're like, well, I want my partner to feel like they're good in bed. And so I'm going to fake, I'm going to, I'm going to fake an orgasm. They also fake an orgasm to prevent the emergence of unwanted thoughts and feelings in the, in the couple. So they're, the per, the woman's worried that if, if I don't fake, then we might get in a fight or something bad might happen. They are trying to strategically alter the partner's behavior. So I'm not quite sure what the research was referring to there, but just take that. They also do it to protect their partner's self-esteem, which makes sense. They said that they fake to avoid anxiety, self-consciousness, and psychological abnormality. So for some women, they don't want to be, they don't want to be, they don't want to think of themselves, they don't want to be labeled as a broken 
And so they'll fake an orgasm because they want people to believe that they're normal. Some people fake an orgasm because they want to end sex quickly. There's like, this hurts, or I don't like having sex with this person, or I'm tired, and so I'll just fake an orgasm because I know that they won't stop until I have an orgasm, so I'll just fake. Or they will fake an orgasm to enhance their own sexual experience. So that's kind of an odd one, right? Like, why would you do that? But for some people, they might actually get some sexual pleasure or some, I don't know, some sort of pleasure from faking an orgasm. Now, when they look at men, again, the rare studies that actually look at, I think I only found one study. Um, and I had to, so as I was doing this section, it was all on women. I was like, ah, I should really try to dig deep and try to find a study on men because this is annoying. Um, for men, they faked an orgasm because it was taking too long to orgasm. So for some men, it's just like, this is taking too long. And I, 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 I don't think it's ever going to happen. So I might as well just fake the orgasm. Uh, they also wanted sex to end, which is similar to women. They wanted to avoid hurting their partner's feelings. So for some partners, whether it's another man or a woman, they will worry about their partner being insulted by the fact that the man doesn't orgasm. And so they fake it for that reason. And another reason is that for some men, they feel bored or tired or sleepy and they're just no longer in the mood to have sex. And so they just fake an orgasm to get it over with. So attachment is related to this. So the, the more attachment insecurity you have, the more likelihood you're going to fake an orgasm, which makes sense, right? Because you're more worried about the relationship. You're more worried about yourself. You're not as um, adept at communicating or regulating your emotions. What about attachment style? So preoccupied people use fake orgasm to increase sexual arousal and to elevate their partner's self-esteem. So for preoccupied people, they're like, they're much more concerned about keeping the other person's self-esteem high. Whereas avoidant people tend to fake orgasm because they want to end sex more quickly. Now, these are not uh, high signals. It's not like if you're avoidant and you're faking orgasm, you're doing it for this reason, but there's just a higher likelihood that you're doing it, which makes sense, right? If you're preoccupied, you're, you're very preoccupied with the state of mind of the other person and you really want them to feel good about having sex and you sort of lack a self and lack self-esteem. So you don't really care about your own sexual experience. You're much more concerned about your partner's experience because you want to keep them close to you. Whereas avoidant, you don't really care about having sex with other people as much. And so you're much more likely to fake because you're just like, ah, oh, let's just get this over with. <laughs> My general stance is to avoid other people anyway. So, you know, let's just get this. I know you're going to be upset if I don't continue doing this. And so let's just get this over with. Again, these are not universal. And of course, securely attached people could obviously engage in these things too. But I just thought it was interesting to look at the research that people have looked into fake orgasm and attachment style. All right, so that was faking orgasm. Let's look at infidelity and cheating, otherwise known in the literature as extradiatic involvement, or EDI. Uh, but let's just call it cheating or infidelity. Numerous studies have examined the prevalence of cheating in our society, with results ranging for men between 20 and 50%, women between 10 and 30%. But it's hard to know because you have to ask people to self-report. but So let's just say that about one-third of people engage in infidelity. 
and there seems to be a slightly higher rate for men, but uh, that gap is closing as women gain more power in the world. Couples therapy, between a half and two-thirds of couples come to therapy. Uh, They are saying that infidelity is the reason why they went to treatment. I find this figure to be really high, um, anecdotally for me. Certainly infidelity is a major reason why people come into therapy, but I would say for me, it's probably as, as like the main reason why they come in to treatment, I would say it's probably as low as like 5%, maybe lower for me. But this study found that half to two thirds of couples coming to couples therapy, it's because of infidelity. Now let's look at attachment style. So preoccupied people are actually more likely to cheat than secure or avoidant people. So that's kind of interesting, right? So if you're preoccupied, you're, you're more likely to cheat than the other attachment styles. Basically because preoccupied people, they view emotional intimacy with others as a solution to their attachment insecurity, but they also have a hard time believing that other people will be consistently there for them. And so consequently, they uh, preoccupied people, as I've been talking about in other chapters, they employ a hyperactivating strategy in times of stress meaning they they hyperactivate their attachment behaviors and their attachment system, which can involve aggressive attempts to get attention, meaning hostility or accusations or even violence. They can engage in overexpression of negative emotions. So instead of just saying, I'm feeling bad, they'll, they'll be very expansive and exaggeratory with their emotions. Or they might really actively protest, um, the other person's behavior because they're trying to get a connection. You know, they might, how dare you come home from work late or how dare you not text me when this happened, you know, this protests. And so for, for these reasons, uh, the preoccupied person is more likely to cheat because they are, um, so there's a lot of different roads to cheating, which I'll get into in a second, but just to briefly talk about it. So when you're preoccupied, so there's a lot of different presentations because infidelity is really quite common. So there's a lot of different reasons. Anyway, so you're preoccupied and you feel really distant from your spouse and it's been a long time. You've felt distant for years and you're desperate for some closeness. So you, and someone approaches you at work and seems to be flirting with you and you, you just, oh my God, this person knows me. This person gets me. This person wants me. And all of their attachment needs come pouring out and they just throw themselves at that person who's flirting with them and sex might be involved in that throwing at, right? So that's one road to infidelity. Another road is I'm so hurt by my spouse. I'm so angry at my spouse, but I don't feel safe enough to express that anger that I will do so through cheating, which doesn't make any sense, right? It's totally immature. And sometimes people in a passive-aggressive way, will cheat in an attempt to get back at their spouse for hurting their feelings, even though they never tell their spouse that they cheated on them, if that makes any sense. It's sort of like an internal revenge process. Anyway, I'll get more into that later. Now, avoidant people uh, are less likely to cheat than preoccupied people, but, uh, you know, because when they are threatened attachment-wise, they use deactivation strategies as opposed to hyperactivating strategies. And deactivation strategies are things like relying on the self or 
depending on the self instead of depending on other people, um, less likely to express affection even to people who are flirting to you, and to separate love and sex from each other. So, to some ex- so some research has actually found that avoidant people are more likely to cheat than secure. So, to me, uh, when I look at all the different research, and again, it's hard hard to nail this down because you have to ask people to self-report. But it looks to me like secure people are the least likely to cheat. Then second is avoidant, and then um, second is you know is avoidant, and then preoccupied are the most likely to cheat. Um, so avoidant people might cheat. They're more likely to cheat than secure people because when they feel threatened, they they might actually um, look for some attachment security, but they'll do it through sexual activities. And since they don't really consider sex and intimacy to be the same thing, it's a much easier leap to have sex with a random person or even a sex worker because it sex to these people are is more likely to be seen as a mechanical functional thing. Also, avoidant people are more likely in conflict with their spouses to feel like they're being oppressed by their spouse. They're just like, ah, oh, you know, my my spouse is just constantly on my on my back all the time. And I, I just, I'm just, it's so bothersome. They're always hounding me for things. And so they might engage in infidelity to gain freedom or independence. So for avoidant people, um, this is true for preoccupied people too, but when they're going through difficult, so, but particularly for avoidant people, when they're going through difficulties in their marriage or long-term relationship, they will very quickly start fantasizing about being single again. And so in their mind, so, so say they're going through chronic conflict and ups and downs in a relationship. A couple years in, every day they're thinking about leaving their spouse. But because they're attachment insecure, they don't really have the ability to think through this process or to communicate about it or fix it without some help. And so they're kind of left to their own devices. So they'll just fantasize a lot. They think often about, oh, I'm going to get an apartment or um, I should... I should get my bank account in order or I should make sure that I work out a lot because I'm going to be single again. There's all these secret actions of separation and preparation to leave without doing anything functional to actually leave or prep to leave or try to fix the relationship because they're more, again, self-reliant. And one of the things that you can do in that phase is to actually open your heart and mind up to relationships with other people. And so... Um, the avoidant person in that state might just be like, well, I've basically divorced my spouse in my head anyway. I might as well cheat on them. I mean, I'm not, it's not really cheating because I've, I've basically already decided I'm going to leave them. All the while, never having told the other person that they're going to leave them. You know what I mean? Okay. So let's look at different types of infidelity. So uh, researchers have looked into attachment style, and the different types of infidelity that different attachment styles will get into. As a caveat before I go into this, know that it's hard to research this, and also there are some tendencies, but they're not very strong signals. But anyway, so when we look at preoccupied attachment, they tend to have, according to theory, the following types of infidelity. Um, Number one is the protest affair. So this is a this is infidelity that involves a form of protest, retaliation, or revenge for feeling hurt, rejected, or abandoned 
by one's romantic partner. And it is reactive in nature. And the cheater often is willing to work on fixing the primary relationship. So the preoccupied person, they're upset and they're like, I'm going to cheat on this person. It's all subconscious and it's all dysfunctional. It's usually not a conscious, rational, healthy thought, but it happens. But they're subconsciously cheating because they want to get back at their partner. But in the end, after the infidelity, they're actually willing to work on the relationship. They're actually like, um, I'm sorry that I cheated. I, I really want to be close to my spouse and this kind of thing. I've seen this a lot, by the way. As I go through these, I hope it becomes clear that the common narrative about cheating is not really supported by observation, you know, because the common narrative is like that that dude is a scumbag and he just uses women or that woman is a, that woman is a slut and has she's a whore and she has no self-control or, you know, they were sexually abused and they're acting out or something. And I hope it becomes more clear when we look at these things through an attachment lens that there's a lot of different reasons why people cheat. Again, we're looking at like about a third of people cheat. So this is really common. Coincidentally, about a third of people have insecure attachment, right? So isn't that interesting? Number two, preoccupied people. Now, avoidant people can absolutely do this too, but um, but again, preoccupied people tend to do these. Number two is the come and get me affair, which is a plea to be noticed and feel important. So the cheating is a way of manipulating the other person to draw them closer because they, they want to be validated. And, um, you know, the cheater, again, they're only cheating because they really want attachment security with their partner. And so they will flirt or um, cheat as a way of provoking the other person to jealousy and therefore to move towards them. The other kind of affair is the hedge fund affair in the literature. It's called this. The cheater has a working model of the self that is unlovable and unworthy of relationships and of um, and they also believe that other people can be untrustworthy and unstable. They believe that relationships will not last, and consequently, they prepare for the inevitable dissolution of the relationship by getting involved with uh, another person as a way of sort of being a, a secure sort of transitional object between being with someone and not being with someone. So that's why they call it the hedge fund affair, because you're you're hedging your bets. You're like, well... I think I'm going to leave. I think this relationship is going to end. I think this relationship is going to, I think I'm going to get a divorce. And so I need someone to tide me over through the, through the difficult years. And so I'll have an affair with that person. The other, uh, the last one here that preoccupied people engage in in general is called the romantic fantasy affair. So this is an, uh, this is an affair or infidelity that provides an escape from the challenges of life for people you know, because preoccupied people have this sort of idealized view of relationships, they they have this vision in their mind of this perfect relationship that is constantly validating and constantly secure and never has any problems and is, you know, lots of eye contact every day and lots of expressions of love and just feeling connected all the time. Preoccupied people, they want that and they believe it's actually possible, which it is not likely possible. I mean, there might be some rare instances of people maintaining that for at least a few years, but it's not possible in the long term. And so for preoccupied people, they're 10 years into their marriage and they're just like, 
I've, I haven't felt romantically close or I haven't felt like secure in years. And they have this fantasy about being swept away by someone who just loves them and is constantly asking them how they feel and has, you know, just very romantic and very dedicated. And so they will have an affair because they just have this fantasy that it's possible. Um, okay, now let's look at avoidant people. Let's look at their their typologies of infidelity. Uh, so th- the first one here for avoidant people is the burnout affair. So this is when the cheater is looking for a connection outside the relationship after many failed attempts at restoring the primary relationship and has lost hope. So this person is just like, I'm done with my partner. Our relationship is dead. And... You know, that's it. And so these people, so the preoccupied people, they tend to have infidelity while at the same time desperately wanting to return to security with their, with their partner. They're, for some of them, they're actually cheating because they want their partner to know so that their partner will be jealous. Whereas avoidant people, since their tendency is to run away, their affairs tend to be along those lines. They tend to cheat as a way of running away, and they actually don't really want, at least consciously, they don't want to re-engage with their romantic partner. So the burnout affair is when the individual is just like, um, this relationship is dead, it's over, what's the point? You know, I'm going to cheat because of that. Number two for avoidant people is called the power play affair. So when you are avoiding attachment, you are insecure in your relationships with other people, and you have a general working model that relationships are unsafe, that they're dangerous, and that other people can't really be trusted. And so there's a, there's a lot of different ways one could cope with that, but one way to cope with that is to try to have power over the other person. To As Seinfeld, they would put it, you know, I have hand. Remember that? I got hand. She's got hand. And when we are in power, it feels safer. This is actually something I haven't talked about yet, but um, just to go down a little tangent here is uh, one of the things that uh, preoccupied or even avoidant people will do as a way of coping with their fear of being abandoned is they will find someone who is, um, is has a lot of difficulties in life emotionally or in their relationships or in their finances or something. And the insecure attached person will choose that person to marry because there's a subconscious belief that this, that their partner will never leave them because their partner needs them either financially or intellectually or something. And so uh, that's another way of coping with it. Now with this affair, the person cheating is just like, I feel insecure. I don't know what to do about it. So I'm going to get power over the situation, and I equate having an affair as gaining power. It makes me feel more powerful, and you know, I, I feel powerless in relation to my partner. And having an affair makes me feel powerful. These affairs t- typically are very short and intense, and tend to be sex oriented and not emotionally oriented. And some research has found that this is a very common type of affair. There's a study by Gerard et al. 2018 that found that, that the power play affair is really quite common. 
Um, and it's associated with various different personality disorders, dependent, passive aggressive, avoidant, narcissistic, histrionic. The third type of affair that is associated more with avoidant people is called the compulsive affair. This is when the cheater attempts to numb their intense emotional pain through disconnection of sexual affairs, through um, uh, like sex workers and this kind of thing. So I've actually worked with a lot of people in the in this category over the twenty plus years in my practice, where people will feel relational distress and they don't really they won't really notice it because they're either avoidant or they're they're accustomed to it. And what will happen is they'll just have this emerging compulsion to go to a strip club or this emerging compulsion to go to a quote-unquote massage parlor or this emerging compulsion to go on the internet and find a sex worker that they can do a video chat with or something. Or even, I guess, just porn, which I'll get into in a second. But uh, this compulsion is um, a reward system because... Just let's just say strip club activity. The the individual, let's just say it's a male, so that the, the guy is feeling lonely and has been attachment injured by his wife, and he's coming home from work, and he just has this has this notion of just like ah, just drop by the strip club for an hour or something. Your your wife won't know, and um. It just, you know, just kick back. It'll be good to kick back. It'll be good to just relax and maybe have a conversation with somebody and, you know, see some naked people and, you know, it'll be good. And so, but they don't really know why they're having that compulsion. They don't know why that that's popping into their head. I would suspect that a lot of men who go to these kinds of uh, scenarios are actually suffering from deep loneliness. You know, you'll talk to sex workers and they will often attest to this. They'll be like, a lot of my customers are not actually looking for sex. I mean, certainly that's part of it. But really what I can tell they're looking for is someone to love them. They are really alone. And they are uh, they feel very distant from other people in their life, particularly their, their wives or their spouses. And through me, they're trying to get some kind of connection with other people. I, and and I can't be that person for them because I'm not their spouse. I'm, you know, we only have an hour together and, you know, once the hour is up, it's over. And so there are a lot of people, now, of course, women can be this way too. Um, in our society, it's harder for a woman to engage in this kind of uh, thing because there's less sex there's less sex workers that are, are marketed towards women, but I imagine that'll change in, in the future. So the the person goes to the strip club and they, um, you know, from the outside, it looks like this really overtly sexual thing, perhaps even misogynistic thing or something. And and the male is is, you know, this lustful, lewd kind of situation. But for a lot of these men, in my estimation, what they're – so – one of the things that happens in strip clubs is there will be these lap dances, right, where they will take the customer into a room or something, and there there's a lap dance where they dance on your lap. <laughs> and, well, what happens during that time? Well, there's a sexual component, obviously, but 
what I would contend is what's really happening, what the, what need is really being met in the customer is an attachment need of essentially cuddling. It's sort of like this um, – uh, it's a socially sanctioned uh, cuddling experience between two people. And the customer gets – intimacy and warmth and empathy. Someone's paying attention to him. Someone has eye contact. They're willing to do things for them. And it makes him feel like he's lovable, like he's attractive, like he's safe. You know, It's kind of even like a motherly experience because the dancer is over the, the male. The male is sitting. The male is stationary. Uh, the woman is very if you just look at the body language the woman is dominating the the male physically and it it can feel for a lot of people uh, very maternal and very intimate and i would contend that a lot of men that that's why they're doing this sort of thing and I, and sex work is the same thing so uh this this can look like a compulsion like they have, have a compulsion for porn or a compulsion for sex work or compulsion for strip clubs. But uh, in reality, what's happening is there's an attachment system that is at play. Because for men, they're not allowed to talk about, they're, they're, not, they're discouraged from talking about their attachment needs, and they're discouraged from even knowing their attachment needs. And that that's my point that I'm trying to get across, is that when I would work with people like this, it would take a long time for them to realize, oh, so my cyclical compulsion of going to the quote-unquote massage parlor, is related to my attachment needs. And it's a barometer. The urges are a barometer of the feelings I have of closeness and safeness and security with my spouse. Um, That's kind of weird to think about because I've never thought about that before. And it actually takes them a while to to realize this because when I first bring it up, they're like, no, I don't think so, because they've had... 45 years of not paying attention to their attachment needs. So they don't even know what their attachment needs are. Um, anyway, having said all that, there are plenty of people who go to quote unquote massage parlors, sex workers, um, porn sites, strip clubs who are doing so because of reasons unrelated to attachment issues um, and could be related to perfectly healthy reasons. There's There's people out there who are just like, I just like interacting with sex workers or I just really like porn or I just really like strip clubs. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with these places. They're not filled with a bunch of pathological, lonely people. I'm not saying that at all, but um, I think it is kind of a compelling thing because in our society, we, if you just look at it from a bird's eye view, you socialize men to only be sexual and to not realize their attachment needs. And then what happens in our society? Well, there has to be mechanisms for people to get their needs met, uh, even if they're not quite functional. And so the, so society starts slipping in these different mechanisms to relieve the pressure, such as strip clubs and male-oriented pornography and all these kinds of things. And um, it provides a way of compensating for the fact that we're socializing our boys in this really dysfunctional way. Um, again, not to say that these institutions wouldn't exist if we had no attachment insecurity in the world, but they would, in my estimation, be frequented in a much different way. Okay, so let's talk about pornography. 
I there's a lot of research on pornography and attachment style, and I have to say a lot of it is pretty biased against pornography. There's this general assumption that pornography is a bad thing and should be eradicated or something. And, you know, maybe it should, but it's just notable that in the field of psychology that uh, maybe it's like safer to come out with a journal article that is anti-pornography. They would never say pornography needs to be eliminated, but it's sort of present in, in the way that they talk about things. Having said that, there's plenty of sex positive, shall we say, pro-pornography research on attachment and pornography, which we'll get into. There's a lot of different findings in the research. For example, one finding that is has been found by a lot of studies is that when you have insecure attachment, you're more likely to look at porn. Um, this isn't to say that porn is unhealthy, but uh, I suspect that, and as I talked about in other chapters, when you have avoidant uh, style of attachment, you're much more likely to look at porn and masturbate, whether you're a man or a woman. This makes sense, right? Because you're self-reliant, you uh, avoid other people, you're worried about other people. And so uh, when you have sexual urges, you're more likely to turn that inward and be self-reliant than to reach out to other people. Also, there's a fair amount of research suggesting that more pornography use can result in attachment disruptions between couples because it focuses sexuality and maybe even attachment energies outside of the relationship. But it's hard to draw that connection because is it chicken or egg, right? Is it, does the pornography cause the distance or does the distance cause more pornography use? So it's, it's hard to say exactly. So just to highlight the strange findings and the variety of findings in the research that uh, contradict each other and also don't make a lot of intuitive sense. Uh, let's look at one study by Moss et al. 2018. Sample size of over 6,000 people, a large sample of people, and they, f- they found the following things. For men who were preoccupied, attached, more pornography use was associated with higher relationship satisfaction. So that's weird, right? So if you're preoccupied and you're a male, then more pornography use was associated with higher relationship satisfaction. It's like, why would that be? It doesn't make, it doesn't make a lot of logical sense to me. For women, however, for women who are preoccupied, more pornography use for them was associated with less relationship satisfaction. So that's interesting. For men who are more accepting of pornography, more pornography use was associated with more relationship satisfaction. For men who are less accepting of pornography, more pornography use was associated with less relationship satisfaction. So this whole interaction between porn and attachment style and relationship satisfaction, has a, has, there's a lot of moderating variables. How, how do you see pornography? You know, for some couples, they'll come to me and um, they will be totally cool with porn. Both of them look at porn. Uh, heterosexual relationships, gay relationships, they'll be like, yep, we both look at porn. I assume my partner's looking at porn. I like to masturbate. I like, you know, sometimes we look at porn together. I don't know. And porn's just like a non-issue and it's present in their life and totally cool. Other, so that's one end of the spectrum. Other end of the spectrum, you'll have couples where they both think pornography is abhorrent and immoral and horrible and gross and um, 
not to be looked at and, and almost considered like crack or something. Like it's, it's this super addictive substance that has to be avoided at all costs. And both of these views are valid. You can, both of them are fine. And I've worked with people on both ends of the spectrum and, you know, everywhere in between. Some couples agree on their approach to pornography and some don't. Um, so uh, there's a lot of different variables that would play into pornography and attachment. So if you have a couple that's totally cool with porn and they occasionally look at porn, then you could imagine how pornography wouldn't necessarily affect their attachment and their relationship satisfaction because it's not really a thing that they interpret that way. Whereas if you have a couple where they think that pornography is evil and bad and immoral and even cheating, then pornography, you could imagine, they, you know, one spouse catches the other spouse looking at porn. Well, because they interpret that as infidelity, then that's going to degrade their relationship. So the research often, and especially when people report on it, it's like, oh, porn is associated with bad things. And that's not true. It's more important to say that, you know, porn is associated with bad things when porn is interpreted as a bad thing between people. Um, you know, and this, to, just to take it to an extreme, you know, uh, to, to say a statement of when a wife has sex outside of the marriage, that is a bad thing that always harms the marriage. You say, you know, you're like, if a wife has sex with another man while being married, the husband's relationship satisfaction will decrease. So that sounds like, oh, that makes sense, right? But not always. Depends on how the couple sees that. There are polyamorous couples, married couples that I've worked with, who both um, have decided that it's okay to have sex outside the marriage as long as they're following ethical guidelines that everyone is cool with. In fact, a husband could be extremely elated that their wife had sex with someone else because they want their wife to be happy and they um, just enjoy when their wife is happy. And so it, again, it just depends on the, um, the way the couple is. And because our society is so sex phobic and sex negative in the research literature, when porn is being discussed, it's, uh, they, they, they find, you know, they'll, they'll, they have findings and then they conclude, oh, this means that porn is bad. But obviously that doesn't make any sense. Having said that, whenever I promote this sex-positive idea that um, sex is fine and I'm talking about porn, I'll inevitably get an email from someone saying, like, um, how dare you talk about porn in a positive way? Um, don't you understand all the bad things about porn? Yeah, I absolutely understand all the bad things about porn. Uh, sex slavery, for example, uh, uh, diseases, which if I went into the details, they actually can manage that pretty well with regulations and with um, essentially workplace safety, um, exploitation, uh, blah, 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 physical damage to one's body, self-esteem issues. Obviously, there can be a lot of really bad things associated with porn. Absolutely. So I acknowledge that. But at the same time, uh, I also acknowledge that uh, it, pornography can be ethical. It can be done in a way that is um, not harmful to the actors and can be done in a way that doesn't promote um, negative sexuality to the outside world. 
Uh, pornography by 2019 is a wide variety. There's a wide variety of pornography out there. Um, pornography can harm children, uh, teenagers when they view it because it gives them an unrealistic expectation of what sex is supposed to be like, or shames themselves for not having body parts that look uh, the way that they think they're supposed to look. Um, and pornography can actually help people by helping them to normalize sexuality. I mean, imagine if you're a um, you know 13 year old lesbian girl and you come across uh, porn that's made by lesbians for lesbians. And you're like, oh, I guess sex between two women is normal. And those two people look like they're having fun and they look sex positive and they look like they have real bodies. Um, that means that I'm okay. So pornography in and of itself is, is um, you, we just have to look at it more closely. It'd be like saying communication is bad because sometimes people insult each other. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, insulting each other is bad, but sometimes communication is good. So let's just be non-Victorian about it. But the gestalt from all the research and thinking about it for a bit, it to me, is that when we are talking with clients and when people are thinking about their own lives, it's important to think about how porn and sexuality in general is a part of their attachment system. So when you're talking with someone and they're struggling with attachment insecurity, uh, how is pornography and sexuality in general related to that insecurity? Are they um, trying to find answers to their in attachment insecurity through sexual means that aren't really working? Like uh, of an avoidant male is very um, sad about being alone. And so he turns to pornography and masturbates all the time because when he's masturbating, he's basically fantasizing about being in a secure relationship with somebody, about having someone love him and pay attention to him in a way that he really wants. And then um, he, over time, uh, develops this very complicated relationship with pornography in which he likes it on one hand and gets some minor attachment needs met through that, but he also ends up hating pornography and hating masturbation because it reminds him of being alone. Then he comes into therapy and he sits down on your couch and he's like, I need to stop masturbating. And you're like, okay, well, if that's what I want to work on, let's work on that. But when you actually figure out his attachment world, you learn that, oh, this whole thing is just a part of a larger story, which is his attachment needs are being threatened. So yeah, we can help him to stop masturbating, but really what we need to do is address his attachment needs. So that's what we need to do when we're working with people and when we're thinking about ourselves is what are our attachment needs? How are they connected to sexuality? Um, what are we doing with sexuality? How are we using sexuality to enhance our attachment security? How are we using sexuality to avoid our attachment insecurity? What are we doing with our sexuality to harm our attachment insecurity? How can we, in our marriages, really listen to the other person? How can we, like one thing that I'll, I'll often do with couples is I'll say, when we talk about them having sex, I'll say, so, okay, great, you had sex, but what did you do around the sex, <laughs> during sex, before sex, after sex? Because if they say like, well, we just jump into bed, we have sex, and then we go on with our day, I'll say like, well, do you cuddle? Do you look into each other's eyes? Do you, um, you know, do you talk in in the darkness? Um, 
Do you spoon before and after? You know, there's a lot of things that go into attachment that are surrounding sex that when you can highlight those things and really capitalize on those things. You know, your parents and you have three kids aged uh, two to seven, and your time to have sex is when the kids are at school or something, and you're like, okay, we got to have sex. Well, how about you also use that time to really bond and to really... There's a powerful experience of having sex and also a powerful experience to looking into each other's eyes without any um, snarkiness or defense. You know, really looking into someone's eyes and telling them that you love them. Really looking into someone's eyes and saying that you're there for them and that you're open to them. And that can be done through sexuality and it can be done through non-sexuality. So sometimes working with couples, you want to try to make that more conscious for them, find out what their preferences are, highlight experiences that they've had, and, you know, really just make sure that um, they're getting their attachment needs, their deep attachment needs met. So while we're on the topic of porn, let's look at child pornography, which is really quite a different topic, but possesses the same word of porn. Um, There's a fair amount of research looking at child pornography use and attraction and attachment style. And uh, one study, Armstrong et al. 2013, found that uh, internet child pornography use is um, reported, uh, is associated with insecure attachment, which makes a lot of sense, right? (laughs) If you have insecure attachment, you're going to suffer from a lot of issues, including a propensity to to child porn. It's hard to know exactly what's going on here, but uh, what I would suspect... And actually, in watching the Michael Jackson documentary recently, Leaving Neverland, you know, Michael Jackson was mistreated growing up and grew up with what I would suspect to be disorganized attachment style because he had a lot of strange behaviors. He, uh, for some people, so there's a lot of different coping styles available. You know, one person goes to the strip club every day. Another person... Um, becomes a monk and tries to avoid their attachment needs altogether. Uh, Another person becomes violent. Another person is domestically violent. Another person becomes a heroin addict. You know, there's a lot of different ways that we can cope with extreme attachment injury and ongoing attachment stress. And one of the ways that some people will gravitate towards for a variety of different reasons, probably related to their, their upbringing, is to abuse young children sexually because you develop this um, need or you develop this association that having sex means that you have people close to you. So that's one association, which makes some sense and has some rationality to it. You also develop this association that younger people are easier to control. You also develop this association that younger people are, um, are more needy and therefore need you more, you know, in the same way that a preoccupied woman might be attracted to a alcoholic man because she knows that him being alcoholic will make him more dependent on her. A adult might be attracted to a seven-year-old boy romantically because that uh, seven-year-old boy is less competent in the world and therefore more likely to be dependent on you. And uh, so, so if you make all those associations, 
Younger people are more dependent, therefore they're less likely to leave you. Younger people are less likely to have a romantic interest in other people and therefore less likely to leave you. Younger people um, are less powerful. I can control them and therefore they're less likely to leave me. I now want to marry someone who's seven years old, but I can't do that legally, so I'll do that behind closed doors. It, it kind of seemed like that's what Michael Jackson was doing, honestly. Hard to know, of course. Uh, you know, we tend to look at people who molest young children as these evil people, and certainly that's another route. So some people will actually be, they develop sadism, which is this uh, pleasure in harming other people, and uh, they will harm young children sexually because young children are just uh, easy targets for that. But some people I, I suspect, and I think Michael Jackson was one of those people, because the way he abused the kids was in a way that was um, not, uh, it wasn't violent. It was romantic. I mean, when you hear these guys talk about the way that Michael Jackson had sex with them, it was as if they were in a romantic relationship, um, not as if they were in a violent, coercive relationship. Now, there are absolutely coercive elements to it. When you watch the documentary, you hear that. Um, So, you know. But anyway, I, I, I just think it's interesting to think about how when we push people to their attachment stress limits, that they will come up with very odd ways of coping, such as child molestation um, and and therefore child porn. So uh, it's just interesting to think about. Obviously, there are other routes to child molestation and, and being attracted to child porn, uh, being abused yourself, having an immature sexuality yourself, um, wires being crossed in your brain. You know, there's just a lot of different reasons, but anyway. All right, well, that does it for that chapter on sexuality and attachment. I could go on and on, but I feel like for time's sake, let's just end it there. Maybe I'll do other future episodes going deeper into some of these issues. Um, uh, so this will be a short chapter, even though I think it's at least an hour long. Um, let's just end it there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. You really, really, really do.